Welcome back to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and today we have Derek May joining us to discuss the overlap of accessibility and user experience, and why accessible user experience benefits people both with and without disabilities. Derek is a senior UX UI designer at 3Play Media who is passionate about understanding interactions between people and the technologies they use. Derek has an eye for aesthetics and a knack for the functional and wants to fuse together his knowledge of both code and design to create digital products that excite users and simplify their interactions with digital products. With that, let's dive in. Thank you so much, Derek, for being with us today on Allied. We're super excited to have you here. Um, To get started, we want to talk to you a little bit more about your personal background. So can you tell us about your background, where you're from, and what did you see yourself doing as a young kid? So my background uh, is in, I think, the creative side of things. I was never really interested or, or knew much about um, accessibility until the last few years um, since I joined 3Play. It's become a huge part of what I'm passionate about and what I'm interested in as a designer. But back in middle school and in high school, I had always had an interest in design and development. So I remember taking a class on web design back in, I think, sixth or seventh grade. And in that class, we learned a lot about Dreamweaver and HTML and good web design principles. And back then, we didn't have emerging interfaces such as uh, voice interfaces or um, AR and um, all these virtual reality interfaces that we see in the news today. So at that time, I think it was the web was definitely a little more narrow in terms of scope. But over the past uh, few years, we've definitely seen the explosion of both web technologies as well as mobile technologies. And, And that's essentially where my focus is today. Awesome. Thank you. And where did you study for your undergrad? So I I was born and raised in Boston, um, stayed local for college, and and I went to Boston University for for college. Um, I studied computer science, math, and got a business degree there too. Awesome. So we, we know that you've done a lot of interesting projects on design outside of 3Play Media. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of your projects? Sure. So outside of 3Play, um, I've done a lot of freelance work in the past. Um, at my last company, uh, I, I worked as a software developer. And only within the past few years, I've slowly made the transition more from development over to the side of design. So in the past, I've worked for a lot of different types of clients. I've worked uh, with HubSpot as a client. I've worked with um, the company that owns the content management system for Aetna, um, which is now under CVS Health. Um, I've also done a bit of consulting with uh, local boutique web development firms. So um, in the past, I've worked with a lot of different clients in the construction, in the cannabis, in the... Um, in the digital marketing space. So it's been all over all over the place. Um, more recently, I started a YouTube channel called The Handoff, where I talk a lot about UI, UX, and just the world of design overall. And when I first started that channel, it was really to uh, promote and help other designers get into the world of UX and UI, especially as someone who went through a bootcamp myself. Um, that was how I made my transition from the world of development into design. So I had uh, attended the six-week 
part-time boot camp program from General Assembly, and that's essentially how I got my feet wet and learned a lot of the basic concepts. Um, but fast forward to today, um, design is always something that I'm interested in, uh, both at Third Play and outside of Third Play. So I'm always constantly trying to learn more about that field. Thanks, Derek. And so we're super lucky at Three Play to have you on as a UX UI developer. And I'm curious, you mentioned that you hadn't really um, you know, known much about accessibility before coming and working at Three Play Media. So can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of made that shift, how you landed at Three Play, um, and why you decided to grow your career here? So right before I applied to Three Play, I was actually in my first semester in my master's program at Bentley University, where I'm studying human factors in information design. And the first class I took as part of that program um, was a very uh, introductory level course on the field of human factors and design. So it covers a lot of ground around how we as users or people interact with the environment and the stimuli around us. So you really go really deep um, into a particular area where you have to write five research papers. And one of the research papers was actually on the limitations of certain modalities as humans. So for example, we learned about colorblindness and we learned about specific accommodations that uh, people needed in order to navigate the environment around us. Um, so that was really an interesting point of uh, that, that particular class that really um, stood out to me. And the more I got uh, to know that, that particular area and, and learn more about the research in that field, I realized that there was this whole field of accessibility. And around the same time, um, I was looking to make a shift in my career. So I came across Three Play Media. A recruiter actually reached out to me and, and sent me information about the company. And I thought it was right up my alley because it aligned with what I was learning at school. Um, had a lot of overlap in, in, in terms of the skills that Third Play was looking for and the skills that I had. Um, so I thought it was a perfect fit and that's how I came across Third Play. Awesome. Can you, for our listeners, tell us a little bit more about what human factor is and, and what does that mean? So human factors is a, I would say a broad, but also a narrow discipline within the field of ergonomics. Um, and human factors really the term itself specifies and, and refers to the physical or the cognitive uh, ways that we as humans interact with um, other humans interact with technological systems and interact with the environment around us. So some people consider it a part of psychology, some other people consider it a part of engineering. But there's a lot of interaction, especially in the past few years, as new interfaces and new types of interfaces have start, started to come up. Um, understanding how we as humans interact with those uh, types of interfaces from a physical level, so some of the limitations that we have around movement of our arms, um, the way that we can see things, we don't have a 360 field of view the same way the owls have. Um, so knowing some of those limitations from a physical perspective, but also from a cognitive perspective, understanding the limitations of working um, and long-term memory and how um, that impacts the way that we use websites or applications or any type of digital product or service, even physical as well. The program I'm in specifically applies the field of human factors to the field of information design. And information design can be categorized as just the presentation of data or information to 
uh, someone either through an interface or through a chart or a table and making sure that information is easy to digest, whether they're interacting with it um, or if they're just consuming that information to make some type of uh, sound judgment. So human factors in ergonomics is really a long-winded way to say and, and explain um, what it's like designing for different types of people and understanding the limitations that we as humans, um, even for those who do and don't have disabilities, making sure that we're designing and considering everyone as a whole. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for explaining that. Um, I definitely can see the overlap there between human factors, um, kind of human-centered design, and certainly accessibility. So that's um, that's really great. So I'm curious, and you know, you touched on it a little, a little bit in your explanation of human factors, but how um, have you seen in your work accessibility and user experience overlap? I think there's a lot of overlap between what I do as a UI UX designer and the field of accessibility in general. A lot of the considerations that I make as a designer when I design digital interfaces and to figure out which colors I want to choose, um, how do I want to present that information on the screen, all the way to the user research side of things. Who is considered our target persona? What does our demographic look like? There's a lot of considerations on both sides of that equation um, where as a designer you have to make decisions that impact and consider the impact on all of these different user groups. So within the world of product design today, I think a lot of companies do take more of a business-centered approach where they're thinking about the impact of um, the, what they're designing for and how they can target the most revenue or target the largest user group. And as a result, we've come up with this concept of the average user. Whereas I think from the field of design, if you're trying to consider everyone as part of your user group and figure out how you can be as inclusive as possible, there's no such thing really as an average user. Because regardless of whoever you're designing for, they're going to have different levels of needs and different types of accommodations that they're going to require when they're using your app or your website or your product. So as a result, I think businesses um, tend to drive towards the Pareto Optimal where you're solving for 80% of your user group. But as a result, that remainder, that remainder of that population or that user base doesn't tend to be considered. So as a UX designer, you really have to consider who you're designing for and try to be as inclusive as possible when you're designing any type of interface or conducting any type of user research. You want to make sure that those voices are being heard throughout that research process and reflected in the interfaces that you're designing. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned that you didn't have a ton of knowledge or experience in accessibility specifically prior to working for 3Play. So I'm wondering how you learned about it and what that experience was like once you were at 3Play as a designer. Yeah, I can definitely provide some perspective on that. I think at 3Play, the culture around inclusive design, inclusivity, accessibility, and just making sure that everyone's voices are heard is a really good um, space to be around because everyone's very open to new ideas. And even as part of our onboarding here at Third Play, I remember sitting in a room with a few other people who were being onboarded at the time, a, a, few, a few other Third Players, and listening to a presentation from Lily about uh, Lily, uh, the director of marketing, on 
what it means to be a, a company focused on accessibility. And I remember it, it was a really open conversation around what accessibility meant to each one of us and how it affected each and every one of our lives. Um, and I think we've done a really good job of continuing to hold conversations around inclusivity and accessibility and making sure that trainings um, are being held on an ongoing basis. And outside of 3Play, I think I've followed a very similar trajectory where I've been continuing to attend different meetup groups across, across the country, especially during this time um, where we're all stuck at home. There's been a lot of great meetup groups IXDA Miami is a really great one where they hold a lot of accessibility focused meetups and, and talks around designing digital products, but making sure that um, the way that we communicate with each other online is also accessible. So especially in the age of live meetings, for example, just making sure that accessibility is a focus and at the forefront of the conversation uh, for designers and, and those within the disability, uh, the accessibility community. Um, so I think it's been two-pronged, but ultimately accessibility is an ongoing process. And even though I've been at 3Play for almost two years at this point, I would say that I'm still a, I'm still learning each and every day. There's so much to learn, especially as new technologies arise and especially as technologies continue to evolve within the web space. I think there's a lot of opportunity to grow. So for a lot of our listeners out there, I would say if you're not familiar with accessibility and you don't know where to start, um, there's a lot of great resources out there. And I would say getting started and at least learning a bit about accessibility in general in that space will put you in a much better um, space moving forward when you're learning to branch out and understand how accessibility impacts everything that you do as a designer or a developer. Thanks, Derek. So you started your career um, in development, and I'm curious, transitioning from a development background, how has your perspective changed around accessibility um, as you've shifted more to a design role? I think the mindset of a developer and a designer tend to be very different, where as a designer, you focus more on high-level problems you're solving, and then when you switch over to an engineering mindset, you think about how you can solve those problems programmatically and how they translate over into code. So coming from a development background, I think most developers tend to want to solve the problem um, at the core of the issue. So either um, when they're writing code or when they're in meetings, how that's going to reflect and affect the way that a user is going to interact with a particular component or a part of the interface. Whereas I think from a design perspective, you're looking at the entire problem from a more holistic perspective. So starting from research, when you're starting to reach out to different users and, and people who are going to be interacting with the product or service you're building, you're going to have to step back and think about who's going to be part of that research and what are some of those cognitive, physical um, limitations that might be uh, impacting the way they interact with your product or service. Um, so as a result, I think designers and developers could both benefit from starting the conversation around accessibility a lot earlier in the process. Whereas even before you even build any type of interface, design any type of screen, have any type of meeting, you should really consider accessibility as part of your pipeline as, uh, as one of the things that you need to do in order to launch your product or service successfully. And there's been a lot of tools that target the space 
uh, nowadays where you have acts on the development side to debug certain issues, but also on the development side as well, uh, or on the design side as well, there's a lot of uh, plugins for these wire, wireframing and prototyping um, tools that allow you to figure out whether or not your designs are accessible from a WCAG perspective, making sure that there's enough color contrast, making sure that you're not relying on just one channel of uh, information to communicate your data. So I think from a high level, both designers and developers could benefit more from collaborate, collaborating from each other and making sure that all of those designs that are that are created by designers can be more fluidly handed off to a developer. Um, but even stepping back from a higher level, there's been this talk about design systems overall over the past few years. And I think a lot of these companies such as Salesforce and Alatsian um, and Facebook and Google, Airbnb, a lot of these companies have kind of pushed that envelope forward when it comes to building components that at the most atomic level are accessible to begin with. So they really do just focus more on how those components interact from a high level and making sure that all those bases are covered uh, with any type of product that's being developed. So I think the space has evolved quite a bit over the past few years. Um, design and development, I think still uh, there are there is a bit of friction, especially at smaller companies or ones that are not as mature. Um, but I think being able to see both sides of that coin and seeing how developers and designers interact has really influenced the way that I try to work with developers here at 3Play. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I'm curious, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but do you have any advice for someone who's kind of dealing with um, the issue of accessibility, really not being at the forefront and not being at the early stages of either their development or their design process? Um, are there any kind of simple ways to you know, like you said, accessibility is a process. Um, there's always room to grow and learn, but do you have any advice for kind of getting started and, and maybe making that a little bit more of a um, proactive thought than an afterthought? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I would say the answer to that is threefold, um, might be more, but I think some of the things that you as a designer or a developer can do to get buy-in is making sure that you're starting with incremental changes. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is that learning about accessibility is a process. And if you're the first designer or the first person in your company to really start these conversations, you don't want to do everything at once. You want to get buy-in naturally. And that could be through uh, organic mediums where you're reaching out to some of your, your friends at the company one by one and starting these conversations, uh, maybe by during lunch or um, starting maybe email threads, um, something small to begin with. You don't want to disseminate a lot of this knowledge because people are afraid of change, especially from a really high organizational level. So making sure that you can do this slowly is really important. And that could be as simple as just installing a plugin for the design team and sharing it during standup and saying, hey, like I found this really great plugin that we can all use to make sure that our colors are uh, ha have significant color, color contrast and, and that we should try to um, include tab navigation as one of the main things that we're considering as we design different parts of the interface that make sure that everything flows together. So incremental changes, I think, is the first piece. The second piece is something around data or making sure that you're, you're able to reach out um, to some type of team um, that, that ensures that whatever you're designing or whatever you're building is backed up by data. So 
when it comes uh, to the accessibility perspective, I think there are some tools out there that help you capture whether or not your interfaces are accessible. And they might give you some type of score and triage some of the things that you'll need to rectify in order to improve that score. Um, so being able to turn it into some type of game or gamify it in some way that allows people to improve the interface slowly or, or people on the team to really make those incremental changes, I think is another way to get buy-in. And then the last piece I think is around developing relationships with people outside of your organization that are willing to back you up. So this could mean reaching out to users that need accommodations and starting that conversation as part of your user research, um, all the way from the discovery perspective, even before you even get to the implementation perspective, making sure that those voices are heard as part of the process so that you can go back to the table with other designers, developers, product managers, and, and show them, like, these are some of the users that we've identified who are actively using our product. And in order to make sure that we don't get sued or we're not liable for some of these uh, accessibility violations, we really want to consider these voices as part of the, the work that we're doing as a development team or a design team. So I think that, that, that question around what designers can do and, and what people who, who are um, the first people in their organization to, to get buy-in for accessibility can do is to really take it slow, but at the same time, try to develop relationships slowly with other people in your organization that are passionate. And if they're not, uh, they're not passionate or they don't, don't, don't even know enough about accessibility yet, just educating them. Um, and you might not be an expert on, on accessibility, but making sure that they're learning things at the same time as you and, and um, making an effort to improve the product or service you're, you're designing is really important. Yeah, that's a really good point about, you know, starting with educating people. I think um, a lot of the times there are different components of accessibility that, um, you know, kind of filter their way into our daily lives, but we've maybe never, never labeled them as accessibility before or thought of them in that way. So, um, yeah, that's a really important point. So now that we've talked a little bit about accessibility, I want to kind of take a step back um, and hear from you. What are some key principles of UX and accessibility that everyone should know? I think that's a very good question. And from a high level, accessibility can be quite daunting because there's so much to learn about it. And everyone is different. Everyone who's going to be using your product or service, um, there's going to be different accommodations that you're going to have to provide when you're considering accessibility as part of your product development lifecycle. But I think Microsoft has come up with a really good framework and toolkit to address some of the overlap between inclusive design, accessibility, and user experience, developing a good user experience. And I would say that disabilities are not as concrete as most people tend to view them. And a lot of disabilities can be permanent, they can be temporary, and they can be situational. So based on all the different modalities that we, has, we have as humans, the visual, the auditory, the olfactory, um, the gustatory, um, there's a lot of different ways that uh, people can be limited by their own physical limitations as well as cognitive. So what I mean by that is someone might be permanently uh, disabled when it comes to their sense of touch. They might not have an arm. Um, they might be paraplegic. Um, 
but someone could also be temporarily or situational, uh, situationally disabled as well. So for someone who's a new parent, for example, who's holding their baby, they might not be able to operate an interface as well uh, because of their inability to access that uh, physical interface using their arms because they're preoccupied with something else. And the same applies for some of these other um, channels or modalities as well. So for someone who um, is, is blind, they can't see, but for someone who is in the middle of a, a task or paying attention um, to some type of flashing light, they might just be as distracted or um, require certain accommodations as well. So when it comes to that overlap between UX and accessibility, I would say that there are several different types of limitations that could be physical, uh, but people might also have communication barriers, economic barriers, uh, maybe even programmatic barriers that are part of the environment or part of society that they can't overcome. So there are, there's still a lot of negative stigmas around people with disabilities, but as a UX designer or as a designer, Learning about accessibility requires you to put your shoes in, uh, put, put your feet in the shoes of someone who has a disability or someone who might not be your average or um, intended persona that you're designing for. So I think from a high level as a designer, one of the best things that you can do is really develop a sense of empathy. And that's a word that you hear a lot uh, within the world of design and UX, but really being compassionate and considering all of the different types of people that you're designing for is a really good way to approach that conversation uh, around design and accessibility. Thank you. I think that's really helpful to kind of get a full picture of what UX design really means and, and what it means to be a UX designer who's thinking about, caring about, and um, you know, creating more accessible content. So you talked about how disabilities aren't always as concrete as people tend to think of them. And I'm curious, kind of in that same vein, how does accessible UX benefit everybody, um, including people with or without disabilities? So I think regardless of whether you have a disability or not, or special accommodations and, and needs, uh, people definitely benefit from accessibility, accessible design. Uh, because there's a lot of different reasons why you might want that redundancy or you might want that fallback, even if you don't have a disability. And to give a few examples, um, online, when I'm watching any type of video, I definitely prefer having captions on. Because the type of learner I am, I really like reading things in addition to hearing it. Um, especially if you're watching a show that has heavy accents. Um, for my parents in particular, um, Translations are really important um, and subtitles, especially because for them, they're not native English speakers. So being able to uh, make sure that captions show up for the video below it, they, they can read alongside and have that extra uh, level of redundancy that makes sure that they can absorb the information a little better. I think having a redundancy in any type of information that you're presenting. So for example, if for a lot of the subway maps that are out there, um, a lot of them rely purely on color. And if you're looking at a map from a distance and they're only using icons or some other channel to represent information, it's going to be a lot harder for you to take in that information because you have to rely on that one channel. And for people who are colorblind, you may not be colorblind now, but if there is some type of physical um, impairment that impacts your, your visual modality in the future, I think that's going to be really important to rely on some other type of channel so that you can take in that information. And a, a really interesting, um, I guess, story that I have is for some of my friends when we're uh, 
at a house party and we're just watching um, a movie or we're watching YouTube, sometimes I'll use my keyboard and instead of having to use a mouse I'm not familiar with or, or if there's a poor connection between the trackpad and the computer, I can just use keyboard shortcuts to either full screen a video or close a tab. I know all these different keyboard shortcuts and having a different way to do things really gives you that fallback so that you can do things a little differently if something does fail within the system or if you just prefer one method over the other, it gives you a little more flexibility in how you want to perform those actions. So I think regardless of whether you have a special or a, a different type of, if you require a special accommodation or not, I think um, having uh, making sure that designs are accessible um, is it really does benefit everyone, regardless of whether you have a disability or not. Thank you so much for sharing those examples. I'm curious, you mentioned captions, and I'd love to know a little bit more about how video relates to UX and accessibility. Are there other things in addition to captions that you um, have to consider? And you know, can you kind of talk a little bit more about video specifically? I think from a high level, there are a lot of different types of multimedia out there. And video and audio have been around on the web for quite a while. But if you look at some of these other types of multimedia that are out there, such as interactive charts and some of these different JavaScript packages that help you even create games and, and different types of um, interactive type of media on, on the web, um, I would say that a lot of the content is still not fully accessible, especially to people who are blind, uh, low vision, deaf, or hard of hearing. And for videos in particular, even for audio files, maybe a podcast or something like that, um, captions are a good fallback for someone who maybe is deaf or hard of hearing, but for someone who's blind, um, they can maybe hear what's going on, but they can't see if there's any type of visual information presented on the screen. Maybe there's a text, maybe there's a classroom lecture that um, is, where it's really important to see what's actually be, being written on the on the whiteboard, uh, but also for a lot of the movies and videos that, that we watch, making sure that there's an alternate form of communication um, is, is really important. So here at 3Play, we have a service called Audio Description. I think that really benefits a lot of people um, who are blind or low vision because in addition to hearing what's going on from the audio, you're also presented with an additional speaker or some type of narrator in the background that narrates what's going on in the video itself. So if there's any type of pertinent information that's important to understanding what's happening in the video or is crucial to understanding what's going on in the movie or video you're watching, you're presented with this different alternative uh, variant of uh, ingesting that information and making sure that you're able to follow along. Um, so there's a really interesting interview that we did uh, as part of Faces Behind the Screen with Blind Fury, who, to who told me that as part of the videos that he watched on YouTube, a lot of the TV shows and a lot of the Netflix originals, He's able to follow along uh, alongside people who are sighted because there's an extra level of narration that tells him exactly what's happening on the screen, whether a car is being blown up or if a dog is, is barking silently that you can't hear. Um, I think all of those are different ways that someone who's blind or low vision can also take in the information the same way that people who are sighted or people who are deaf or hard of hearing can. Absolutely. So I want to begin to kind of wrap things up, um, and I'm curious, you know, one of the things that has come out of 
2020 and and kind of the current climate being, um, you know, doing a lot of things virtually is a little bit more of an understanding and awareness of accessibility and um, the varying needs of different individuals. I'm wondering where you see UX trends heading, um, kind of through you know the end of end of the year and um, beyond. I think over the past few months, we've definitely seen a lot of our lives upended in one way or another, uh, with a lot of companies shifting to remote working, um, a lot of people being laid off, and, and some, some of these services that you see that provide delivery services have, have or some type of in-person service have had to shift over to a remote business model. So I think during this time, uh, live meetings and, and access to live events is going to be a really big part of uh, UX, but also just businesses moving forward, making sure that any types of events, whether they be uh, webinars or meetings or um, conferences, that all of that content can be accessible to all types of people, um, regardless of the accommodation that you need. So I think live captioning is going to be a really big aspect of multimedia uh, moving forward. Um, but also for some of these delivery services for more experience design or, or the service design side of things, being able to be agile and shift business models is going to be really important. So uh, companies like um, Drizzly, companies like uh, all these food delivery services, DoorDash, Grubhub, um, even companies that were more based out of a physical brick and mortar space have now had to shift their business model such that they're able to create digital applications, either websites or um, if you're calling over the phone, making sure that uh, there's some other type of channel um, presented to people who are uh, deaf or hard of hearing, just making sure that there's different ways of communicating that information so that people have equal and accessible access to the experiences that uh, a lot of people do have. So I would say within the realm of UX in particular, I think some of the trends are accessibility in general is going to be a really big one, especially with uh, a lot of rules and, and regulations within that space uh, continuing to evolve year after year and, and continued uh, litigation um, in the space of accessibility. But within the realm of user experience, I think there's definitely been more of a focus on inclusivity and social justice and, and making sure that um, products and companies continue to have that um, at the at the front of their minds when they're designing any type of product or service, making sure that everyone's voices are, are heard instead of just a small subset. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if you can kind of leave us off with one piece of advice that you have for designers who are trying to create a better user experience? I think one piece of advice I would try to give to any designer at any stage of the career, whether you're more of a junior designer or even if you've been in the field for decades at this point, is learning as much as you can about the people you're working with, but also the people you're designing for. So a lot of good design is really informed by requirements, but also constraints for the people that you're designing for, as well as the limitations of either the technical technology that you're using, um, maybe there's some type of business requirement or constraint that you're trying to work under. 
um, and also just all the different types of people that we mentioned um, as part of this podcast that you might be designing for or people who might not be using your product now but will be moving forward. So I think one of the most valuable pieces is just broadening your experiences and trying to learn as much as you can about other areas that you might not be as familiar with. And I try to incorporate this uh, ethos into my everyday life. So it doesn't have to be related to designing a better UX for a product or service, but as, as a humans, I think it's really important for us to learn about what's going on around us um, in the political, the economic, in the social spheres, and try to bring that into your life um, as an individual and see how you can make an, an impact in the lives of other people, um, making sure that their social good and the products you're designing for and having those meaningful conversations within your own friend groups, um, talking to family and friends, and also, uh, when you're working for a company, making sure that um, you're able to bring 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 that into the workplace as well. Um, so I think in 2020, we've definitely seen a lot of things change over the past uh, few months. I think these conversations are going to continue to evolve moving forward. Um, so really being able to broaden your experiences and hear different viewpoints and, and really um, be empathetic at the core of it is, is going to be a big part of uh, good design and uh, humanity moving forward. Absolutely. Since we have a couple minutes, I there is one other question I actually want to add in here. And then I feel like I should start my campaign for Derek for uh, 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like in the, we, we all could use a little more empathy in the world. Yeah. Does, I mean, empathy is kind of one of those buzzwords that you hear a lot in the design space. Um, and to, I think different people, empathy do mean different things. Like some people kind of just hit that baseline. Yeah. Um, of like making sure that you're hearing everyone's voices, but maybe you don't do anything with the interviews that you're conducting with people who are blind or yeah. low vision or people who need accessibility. But some companies really do push that envelope. And it's it's hard to like design for social good, especially because there's so many unintended consequences. So like that that thing that just came up from Netflix around like the social dilemma, like they wanted to do good, but ultimately a lot of the consequences um, are bad because they couldn't, include different people's voices and ultimately it's also like a technological issue of making sure that like the technology speaks to uh, what's actually happening in the world and making sure that like bad actors are acted against in some way so a lot, lot of thoughts there yeah so one thing that i would love to get your thoughts on is who should be a part of the ux team i think depending on who you're asked people will give you a different answer um, from a, the perspective of a team itself and looking purely at the roles that you're hiring for. I think UX itself will include some type of research. Um, maybe you'll have a UX copywriter on the team that helps with any type of messaging with uh, customers, but also the micro copy that you're putting on your apps or your websites. Um, you'll also want people who understand information architecture and there's going to be a lot of overlap between these roles, um, making sure that you have someone who's able to work with the UI designers, someone who can work with the um, developers, maybe more of a long-term UX strategist, someone who works uh, with design systems. I, I think there's an endless number of roles that you can kind of go through, but I think what's more interesting is uh, the composition of the people that you're choosing to hire. 
And you want a set of diverse perspectives. You want to hire people who can bring different skills and experiences to the table. So if you're a company within the hospitality sector, for example, you don't want to only hire people who are from the hospitality sector. I think it definitely helps to have someone who comes from a different background. Because I think that intersection where, where you have that cross-pollination of ideas is really valuable to a company because you're able to account for unintended consequences or things that could arise from people who are misusing your application or your product or service. Um, I think it just definitely helps to have a lot of different uh, range of experiences and, and people who have had different levels of experience um, in their careers as well um, join a UX team. So I think being able to recruit from a diverse set of perspectives is what I would advocate for um, when it comes to hiring people for UX, but also people who have an understanding of the product that you're building, understanding of maybe business models and how the work you're you're uh, your designing and, and researching relates back to your company's goals as a whole. There's going to be a lot of overlap between the UX team and other departments that functions within, within an organization. I think it, it's really beneficial to have that uh, cross-pollination. I, I always say designers are kind of like the glue that holds together a lot of different functions. So people who know about development, people who know about uh, the business side of things, people who know uh, psychology and understanding how to talk to users. It's really that intersection there that makes a product and a design team good. Thank you, Derek, for spending the afternoon with us on Allied. We're so happy to have you on the podcast and so grateful to have you at 3Play. Um, we hope that we can have you as a guest again, and we really learned so much. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. I think what we're doing here with Allied is great, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing some of the additional speakers on, on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash allied podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.